Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn? Mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello and greetings. If it's been holiday time where you are this past week or so, we hope you've had a really great break. Yeah, April's a really busy month for holidays, isn't it? It sure is. Whether it's Easter, Passover, Songkran in Thailand, which is the Thai New Year, or Anzac Day today in Australia, a public holiday. Yeah, this month has just raced by. It's nearly May, for goodness sake. I know, it's just crazy how time flies. Now, someone who's an absolute champion of making the most out of her time is Elisa Knox, our guest on the show today. She's a superstar. US-born Elisa has held senior Asia-Pac roles in Google, Twitter, and Cloudflare. She was even named 2020 APAC Asia-Pacific IT Woman of the Year. And these days, Elisa serves on boards and is a senior advisor to her old consulting firm, Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, as well as being a serial mentor. Now, I know Elisa pretty well because we sit on a board together and also we used to work together at Google. But we were really fascinated to catch up with her because she's just written a book called Don't Quit Your Day Job. And it features the six mind shifts Elisa thinks we all need to rise and thrive at work. Yeah, it was a bit inconsiderate. That's quite a tongue twister, isn't it? Six mind shifts. It (laughs) certainly is. (laughs) In this episode, you'll learn why a bad job situation led to Elisa moving countries, why Elisa believes reflecting on your career options at any point in time in your career journey is super valuable, what job dating is, hmm, intriguing, and which of the six essential mind shifts Elisa believes has been the most influential in her own career. Elisa has some amazing career advice, so sit back or start jogging and enjoy this episode with the energetic and dynamic Elisa Knox. Elisa Knox, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. You can't stop me now either. I'm on. <laughs> I know, exactly. And we don't want to stop you. Elisa, it's so great to have you on the show. We know each other pretty well. We were at Google together and now we have the joy of sitting on a board together, which is a whole new experience. So we've got a long history and I know it's a very interesting and exciting history. And you've actually just written a book, which we'll get into in a few minutes. But before we do, one of the questions we'd like to ask all of our guests is if you had to describe what you do at a dinner party to someone you just met, 
How would you do that? Hey, thank you so much, Claire and Greta, for having me on. That's a good question because I actually had an interesting conversation with somebody last weekend at a lunch, as it happens. And she asked me, what do I do? And I said, I don't work anymore. I mostly sit on boards. And what do you do? Do you still work? And she said, yes, I work. I sit on boards. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I know. I thought that was an interesting set of views. But basically, I'd say what I do is I focus on growth. So I've always been part of building organizations. And what I do now is sit on boards of companies that are in growth mode. And I am spending a lot of time with other people helping them develop and grow their careers just for fun. Two official mentees, but all the rest are just bits and pieces and a lot of coffees. Yeah, great. I love that idea that you're focusing on growth, but I am actually intrigued why you think being on boards isn't working. Well, it's not that I mean that it's not work and I like it because it's intellectually challenging and you still get to learn and hopefully add value. I guess my idea of working when I said that was working full-time and getting a you know, a salary for working full-time. Got so you. of course boards pay, but it isn't the same as full-time job. Yeah, right, right, right. So you've now got a number of different hats and you, you're you not working because you've got autonomy and freedom that perhaps you don't have when you're in the corporate world, in your mind. Exactly. A little more flexibility, getting to do a few different kinds of things than a, just a single focus. Yeah. It's awesome, isn't it? I love it. I love it. It's great. Me too. And, you know, we went to your book launch um, a couple of days ago and you talked about seeing your career as a series of, I think you call them software upgrades. Can you explain what that means and what made you shift into the version you're in currently? Sure. So I said Elisa 1.0 was Boston Consulting Group and Financial Services. And even at BCG, I mostly worked with financial services clients. And then 2.0 was my last 13 or so years in tech. And 3.0 is what I'm doing now, which is a little bit unclear. I think people call it a portfolio career, but experimenting. And I guess I'd say two things about it. One is we're all living longer. Many of us have a lot of energy. I certainly do. So we have a, a lifetime to work with doing different kinds of things. And so it's nice to be able to pivot a couple of times or upgrade if it's software or change to meet my own needs, which is what software is supposed to do is to meet the client's needs. So in this case, I guess I'm my my own client. 2.0 was a little more of a surprise. 2.0 came because I met Vince Cerf through some work I was doing at Visa. And we were trying to do a deal together, Visa and Google. And I enjoyed meeting him. He is one of the real founders of the internet. He is an evangelist at Google still. I wrote him an above board, if you will, thank you note from Visa, you know, following up from the meeting as you do and describing what we would move on to do next. And then I seized the opportunity and I talk a lot in the book about serendipity. I took the chance and wrote a side letter to him and said, listen, I'm sitting here in the San Francisco Bay Area. This internet thing, you know, you can see my air quotes, (laughs) is pretty cool. And I don't know much about it. Do you think someone like me could ever work at Google? And that was the start of a conversation that brought me to Google. So that was the 2.0, which I wouldn't have known 1.0 and 2.0 at that stage, but the 2.0 was a little bit of seizing an opportunity. And I do talk in the book about it. I think there's a lot of serendipity in life. And it's not so much the kind of serendipity where they discover Kate Moss in an airport and you know ask her to be a model right away. Although I would like that kind of serendipity. And I'm going to Kingsford Smith this afternoon if anybody would like to discover me. 
<laughs> Wouldn't we all? Yeah. But I think I talk about serendipity and for people being open to a lot of ideas as part of a mind shift in the book, because I hadn't really thought that I would actively pursue tech. And it wasn't serendipity in the sense that Vint didn't say to me, oh my gosh, you know, you're really interesting. You must come to Google. But there was this opportunity. I'd met a quite an influential, interesting person, and I could at least chat with him about it. And it might have been another tech company after chatting with him as opposed to going directly to Google. And then I took an action, right? I did something about it. I saw it, but I had to actually act on it. It didn't just come to me. So that was how I got to 2.0. 3.0 was a little more self-driven. I think the experience of COVID, things I love most about driving growth are in the companies I've been in, which involve heavily going to market, traveling, seeing my clients and seeing my team, not in that order. But I lost all of them during COVID. And I had the opportunity to think about maybe changing again to be in a a place that I wanted to be in. And so that's what led the shift to 3.0. I can so relate to sort of that sense of loss of, you know, not being able to have face-to-face interactions. How did you cope? Did you sort of pretty much changed to 3.0 at the beginning of COVID or did you sort of stick it out for a year and think to yourself, I just can't keep going like this. I've got to create change. How did that work? I guess I came to the conclusion about half a year in and then I organized a transition at work so that nobody would be stuck. And so that gave me some time to adjust. And it's also, you know, it's a little bit scary to be honest. I've worked for 40 years. I had one break for a year in 2002, but that's it. So I've almost never, you know, had an instance where I get up in the morning and I don't have to be somewhere with a full schedule. So as much as it sounds exciting, it's also a little bit daunting if you have my kind of personality. So it was good that I had some time to adjust as well. Yeah, absolutely. And for memory, you had already had quite a few different board roles whilst holding a full-time job down so that you kind of made that transition pathway probably quite a lot smoother than it could otherwise have been. That's true. I'd already been on boards for 10 years. And so I knew a bit what they were about and that I would be able to continue on at least that part of the portfolio career. We've been talking a lot about sort of different transition points in careers. Have you ever regretted a career move? And if so, you know, what happened and what did you do about it? Yeah, I don't know if there's full regret. In the early part of my career, I left a bank training program after having gotten an MBA at night. And I went to American Express because an amazing inspirational woman had recruited me there. And she left three months after I got there. And now that I think of it, she didn't ask me to go with her, but maybe it was because I had just come. And I was left in a really awkward situation working for two people whom I found to be not very clear and not very pleasant, at least with me. And so I lasted for about nine months. And at that point, I really regretted having made that switch because I was doing well at my old job and I liked it. And here I'd come to work for somebody who was inspirational and she had left and I wasn't in a great situation and I was not in a financial situation where I could just quit and look around. So that was tough. But interestingly, I think that really spurred me. I was in New York at the time and I had really wanted to live overseas. And with apologies, Claire, Mm -hmm. I had spent six months in England 
um, <laughs> during college. I know. Look, I'm with you. You, you didn't like the rain, did you? <laughs> it rained. Yeah. It's, I'm not in a strong position given the situation in Sydney right now, but yeah. it did rain a lot and I didn't have a lot of money. So I ate a lot of cabbage and Brussels sprouts, as I recall. And I do like them, but... <laughs> But there's only so much you can eat. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, cruciferous vegetables are okay, but not only. <laughs> yeah. So, and my language skills are not strong. I just get along in English. So I looked on a map, okay, where is it sunny? And they speak English and it's close to Asia because I really was interested in Asia. And I probably in hindsight could have gone to Singapore or Hong Kong at the time. And usually I'm very persistent, but somehow I missed that. So I thought I'm going to Australia and I was further um, cemented in this resolve after having seen Crocodile Dundee, because, <laughs> which, you know, of course dates me, but you know, who does not want to come to a country like that? Absolutely. <laughs> and so at that point, you know, I had finance in my background and also some marketing because I've been at American Express in this marketing job. And I interviewed for consulting roles in Australia. And I think the marketing and the finance together made me more attractive. So on the one hand, I regretted that move because was pretty unpleasant and uncertain. And at that age, I thought, oh my gosh, if I leave a job after nine months, people are going to think I'm a complete failure. But it's possible without that job that I would have not been discontent enough to pursue my dream of living overseas or gotten the job that I got at Pappas Carter Evans and Coop, which became Boston Consulting Group shortly after I arrived. So you know, as you look back on it, again, things have a way often of working out or you go to change them. So I regret it in some senses, but not others. Yeah, I, look, I totally agree. I think when usually when you sort of look back on things, there's always a thread and there's a, you know, in many cases, a reason why you've gone to a certain place. Not to say that you need to stay in places that you hate, you know, but having had that experience and then leaving it, I think gives you often a path forward, as you're saying, that perhaps you wouldn't have had before. Now, in your new book, which is called Don't Quit Your Day Job, which is, I think it's, you know, it's aimed at people who have a job or are seeking one, but also aimed at managers and leaders. You talk about that there are six essential mind shifts that underpin those who succeed in the corporate world. Which one do you think has been the most pivotal in your own success and why? I just want to say before I answer this, that Don't Quit Your Day Job is a great title and particularly gets us thinking during the Great Resignation, which is not as pronounced in Australia as the U.S., but I think, you know, we see a very tight job market and a lot of people, like probably Great Reshuffle is more accurate. So please don't take the title as never change jobs. I think sometimes you should, but often you can make your job work for you, which is what it's about. The thing that worked best for me is the mind shift in Chapter 2, which is called Stamina is a Muscle, Build Yours. I think... I, for whatever reason, was either born with or have developed a great amount of stamina. I consider stamina to be perseverance plus enthusiasm. I don't think stamina is grit, even though that's important, you know, and Angela Duckworth has great things to say on that. Mm. And I don't think it's grinding it out. I think 40 years of grinding something out sounds awful to me. If you can possibly get out of that, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I think stamina is something more. It's like, I'm going to get through this. You know, I spent a lot of time, as I said, meeting with people once in a while who want some help. And usually they're coming at a point in their career where they're at a turning point or they have a problem, right? They don't tend to take me out to coffee to go, oh, life is so great, <laughs> even though I wish they would. <laughs> and so for most of them, I do remind them, this is a blip. You know, this is a long game. 
And this is just a blip. And I think stamina really has a lot to do with being able to get through that. I think anybody who's worked knows that there are bad days, bad months, and maybe sometimes really tough years or tough situations, but most of the time you get through them. And so I think the fact that I'm generally optimistic and find a way to learn something or make something out of the situation I'm in has been the thing that's been best for me. But that's not true for everybody. You know, other people, there are different things that are their superpowers. Yeah. And for you personally, how have you got through sort of the piece that I think many people struggle with, which is, you know, the anxiety, the self-talk, the overanalyzing piece? I wouldn't say I've gotten through it. I'm still here, self-analyzing away. (laughs) The stamina means you kind of just plug on through. And to be honest, I think hopefully the stories in the book and, you know, the time that I do individually spend with people, and I'm sure you guys do too, and I know you do all sorts of consulting and facilitating. I think some of it is about reminding people that they have options and that they have things to offer and helping them see what those are. Yeah. And I think you make a point in the book about the fact that you do have sort of a level of control because you have those options. Because I think many people find it's hard to have stamina if they don't feel like they've got agency. Right. And I think agency is really important. And I talk about it in all sorts of situations. I think the most important part is to come out of the situation with some agency over your own career, which might entail fighting back to some degree so that you get what you want out of a bad environment. It could mean that you go out and do what I like to call job dating. You could call it informational interviewing. You could call it looking for another job, but just going out and talking to people about what you might do for them. And I think it is great on a number of fronts. First of all, I think it makes you feel very good about yourself because you realize that your skills are in demand, right? If you've sat in a job for a while and thought, maybe people don't like me, Maybe I am an imposter, don't have anything to offer. That's almost never the case. I think a second thing is you do see concretely that you have options and you may decide you don't like those options any better than your current role, which is great. So as a manager, when people felt frustrated, I used to encourage them to go out and job date because if they decided to stay, they were much happier than before they job dated. They had gone out and decided, you know what? The grass is not greener. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I love this analogy of sort of job dating and then thinking about your work as a relationship. How do you think about your job in terms of relationship matters? My perspective is that it seems that along the way we've been taught that if you're in a love relationship of some sort, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, spouse, you're really going to damage the relationship if you put all of your needs on that one other person that they can't fulfill everything for you and that that's unrealistic. And yet somehow along the way, we have gone from a job as something you just do to get money to support your lifestyle. And I think that's great that jobs can offer more. You can work for a mission-driven company. You can get some social needs fill at work. You can feel fulfilled, rewarded. You might even have fun. (laughs) But I don't think it's realistic to assume that your career can do everything for you. And for some people, you know, saying that your career is going to deliver on your passions might be too high a bar. And maybe the important thing is just to make room for those passions in your life. I really like that. I think that's really refreshing. And and you're right. I think over the years, your career choice has become so incredibly earnest and so much pressure is put into these decisions. You know, from your own point of view, what is your kind of minimum bargain in terms of what you seek to get 
and obviously this is looking backwards more now because of the full-time roles, but, you know, did you need it to sort of be able to tick at least one passion of yours or did you just need to be motivated by the growth prospects? How did you find the right balance with that? To be honest, I think I just needed to be motivated by the growth prospects. I'm a definite kind of FTMI fit too much in person. (laughs) So I always was able to fit things in on the side, but I also probably went a long time without enough sleep. And that's not a good idea. I think as they've looked at things that lead to dementia, that's one of them, Mm. (laughs) at least from what I've read. And then if you read all of Ariana Huffington's material, I think it adversely affects your career. So I might've made some trade-offs that weren't wise at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. But there must have been an underlying sort of driver for you though around whether it is growth, which you're still focusing on now, but there must be an underlying driver that just drives you to want to pack lots of things into your life. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. I try to talk a little bit in the beginning of the book about what is success for everybody because it's different for different people. And so then that's what maybe is driving your choice of a job. You know, for some people, it's as much money as they can possibly make. For some people, it's no interest in money at all, really want to do a humanitarian cause. In fact, when I had my first interview for the job in Australia, the partner asked me, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? And I said, okay, there are two things I really want besides being able to give it away, you know, philanthropy. I want to travel as much as I want to really cool places. And I want to have a place where, you know, like those big hotels where when you come in the lobby, there's just this huge flower arrangement and I could have fresh flowers every day right where I come into my home. Yeah. So I've never really quite done that second one, but the first one I think I've done pretty well at, although the gentleman who interviewed me, who's a German who lives in Australia, has kept a list of all the countries he's been to because he likes to travel too. Maybe that's how I got the job and I'm still way behind him. Elisa, you know, one of the things that really comes out of the book for me, and I've, you know, having worked with you, I've evidenced this inaction in the corporate world, is, you know, your belief in human kindness and connection and how important that is in getting ahead in the corporate world for you personally. I think that that is just very refreshing. How do you think attitudes are changing to that? So look, I think people are interesting and most people are nice. And it's a lot of the pleasure I get out of working and frankly, out of being alive is meeting lots of interesting, vibrant, different kinds of people. I don't think it's prerequisite. And I'm very clear in the book that the book reflects my style. I think there are plenty of people who are focused on other things and do get ahead without having that perspective. But I do think it can help many people in their careers. And the reason I think it's important, there is another mind shift called connection trumps tech savvy, even in tech. And you know, Claire, you'll know this from Google. The bigger it got, the more complicated it got to get help when you need it, to find information, even with all the best knowledge management systems in the world. You know, sometimes you need to find out about something and you're struggling. And if you've got a relationship with somebody somewhere and when you email them in New York or in London and they have some idea who you are, because they're busy and pressured, they might prioritize your request because they know you, because you've built a relationship. So I think number one is these connections, this human side really helps get things done. 
I think it also helps people get promoted, noticed, moved, you know, when it's your turn for promotion, you might have an advocate or a supporter, you know, people know who you are, you've been visible. And I think the last thing for me is, again, this is just my perspective. I think it makes work more enjoyable. So like, I think work should be rewarding, fulfilling, and if possible, fun. I think that your point around building social capital, which is the term that you use in your book, is just really, really critical. But, you know, the last couple of years have been really tough, haven't they, for building social capital or tougher? Absolutely. How do you sort of recommend people build that social capital when they are remote? Yeah. And especially if you join, and I've met quite a few people who've joined an organization and still have yet to meet their colleagues in person. I know. I know. That's just incredible, isn't it? You can't can't imagine how that feels. I know. I think it's really tough. And I think, frankly, you know, there's been a lot of press about how productive we've been and certainly the elimination of the commute and the fact that there seemed to be no boundaries. So people were working 24-7 has probably increased productivity. But to be honest, I think we've been drawing down on social capital to make that work. And I'm wondering at some point if that will become so depleted that it it actually works against us, the fact that we haven't built social capital. But I think, you know, do the best you can. And I think if you can, and there's not a real reason not to, to the extent that offices or work groups are starting to have meetings and social events, I'd really encourage you to go. And it was interesting I spoke to somebody at Canva the other night, you know, Canva has publicly said you only need to be in the office eight days a year, but he said the office in Surrey Hills is buzzing. Obviously not everybody wants to come in, but a lot of people do. And so they are recreating the social capital. Then I think if you're a leader, you can aim to have your teams come together once in a while. And it might not have to be in the office. It could be at a client. It could be in a park. I think there's another thing you can do, which is like, especially if you've started remotely, maybe find one new work bestie, somebody you relate to, maybe especially someone who's been at the firm a little while who can tell you about things because you've joined in this difficult period. So I think even just having one person to connect with can help things seem less overwhelming in terms of getting to know a company and help improve your mood and creativity at work. Yeah. I've actually heard companies, you know, giving people buddies, which I think is a really good idea. Yeah. Although, you know, I suppose it's even better if you choose somebody that you really connect with, but, you know, at least it's a good start. Yeah. I think then, you know, creating social opportunities might be another one. Even asking about the social life, if you're taking a job, you know, some firms that take a lot of young people vaunt their social life a lot anyway. Google, as you know, Claire, you know, BCG, companies like that. And I think they're trying harder to get around some of the remote work issues at the moment. And so the other thing I've heard that's a very tactical tip and back to the video conferencing is that it's quite important if you're having a group meeting that everyone's kind of the same. And I think this deals not only with social capital, but inclusion. So if you're going to have hybrid and it's an important meeting, you probably should have the people who are in the office together still on their individual computers and their individual screens. Otherwise, you have this dichotomy of five people eating potato chips and laughing in a room Yeah, where everybody on video wonders if they're like laughing at their hair, in my case, or, you know, some joke they don't get. And so it makes the social capital building actually slightly more difficult because some people feel excluded. Elisa, you have been a very successful leader in what's traditionally a man's world, both financial services and technology. 
What have you found helps you succeed and sort of stay true to yourself in those environments? For me, you know, everybody says, bring your authentic self to work. I'm actually not skilled enough to not bring my authentic <laughs> self to work. So that's, that's what comes with. You know, I've had many funny situations. A very long time ago at BCG, I was put in charge of a project. And again, apologies, Claire, I'm sorry, but a British investment bank was the client. And they said to the lead financial services partner, well, but she's pregnant. And the financial services partner said, yes, she is. I mean, to his credit, I'm thankful to him, have been for decades. She's pregnant. You asked for the best person for the job. That's Elisa. If you want somebody who's not pregnant, I can give you somebody else. (laughs) And so they stuck with me, but I did try to fit in. I went and bought maternity outfits with cufflinks because all these guys had cufflinks. So that was my way of trying to make it work. I don't have a great answer. You know, along the way, people have been supportive. You know, I still think women need to keep supporting other women in male-dominated environments and, again, plod through. But I don't think I have a secret that says this is how you do it. That story, you know, when you tell a story like that, looking back, it just sounds so ridiculous. And yet it happens time and time again, doesn't it? It It is just classic. It is ridiculous. And what's even more ridiculous I can see those maternity outfits in my head and they're so old. It was like wearing tents, like nobody wears clothes like that anymore, but they had nice sleeves. And I bet it had like a white collar with a dark colored sort of dress or, you know, tunic or something like that, you know, so maybe, but who knows? Very good. Actually, one of them had a little velvet collar. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not go there. Yeah, let's not. Elisa, you know, looking forward from where you stand, if you look at all the potential pipeline of changes to come in the next few years, and goodness knows we've seen an acceleration of change thanks to COVID for one key reason, what's the technology you're most excited about? Well, I think I'm excited and insufficiently educated about Web 3.0 and really want to see what happens when we are decentralized and can do more virtually. So I'm both excited and trying very hard to learn more about it. I am super excited about any of the technologies that deal with mitigating global warming. I can't even name what all of them are, but you know, the stuff powering EVs. And on a non-technology front, I'm really excited about what seems to be some different approaches, both because of the pandemic, but because of what I'm seeing in Gen Z. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to call them Gen Z here, but I recently had the experience of talking to a 25-year-old who turned down a move to another part of the world, a promotion and double the salary because he liked where he was living. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have done that at 25. I would have been more focused on sort of climbing whatever ladder that was. And I'm not saying everybody should do it, but it's interesting to me that, you know, I think 25% of the workforce are Gen Z now, that they might be making decisions that do, even at a young age, help them really enjoy both their career and their outside life. Yeah. And we've heard sort of info from other sources too about, you know, how they're sort of rejecting the kind of the corporate scenarios, potentially not buying into the game fully, just in the way that you've shared that example there. I'm curious, have you found any great sources in terms of learning about Web 3.0? No, I just go around asking everybody I know who's working in it or working in crypto, NFTs, AI for their favorite podcast, and I'm collecting them. And I can't listen as fast as I'm collecting right now. 
Actually, just as a side, Tim Ferriss interviewed Mark Zuckerberg and I thought I was going to hate it because of, you know, how I feel about Facebook. But actually, it was a brilliant interview. So you should put that on your list. Okay, that's going. That's in my collection. Yeah. Well, Elisa, it's been so fascinating getting to have this conversation with you. And, you know, you've done a great thing coming up with the book, Don't Quit Your Day Job. I think lots of people will get new perspectives, think about the mind shifts that you suggest and hopefully thrive a little bit more in their lives and their work as a result. But thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you or the book, where should they go? Well, other than calling my parents, they could go to (laughs) elisanox.com or they could follow me on Twitter. And I hope that the book is helpful. My goal was after having been in tech all this time to try to scale the advice I've been giving because clearly sitting down and having coffee, especially when like me, you don't even like coffee is limited to the hours in the day. And so I think it's a fast read. There are examples of dozens of people in there. So hopefully readers will find at least one or two relatable. They're all ages, all nationalities. And if you get a nugget that really helps you now and another one that works in 10 months or 10 years, I think that'll be worth it. Yeah. And also the profits are going to uh, not-for-profit as well, aren't they? Yes. They're going to Vital Voices, which is a nonprofit out of Washington, D.C. that is global, that goes to basically promote women, particularly women in politics, in order to make change that is necessary to enable women to be protected and be in the workforce. Fantastic. And that's quite timely in Australia, obviously, with a a federal election coming up at some point very, very soon. Well, Elisa, um, we'll put those uh, links in the show notes. And thank you again. I've loved the conversation today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, you too. It was really fun to be on. Really appreciate being invited. Thanks, Elisa. I really resonate with Elisa's point about not putting such high expectations on your career. You know, just as you wouldn't expect your life partner to cater to all your needs. Yeah, it was a really good and thoughtful point that, and I like the analogy between relationships and your career, and it does make sense. We can fall into that trap of investing our total happiness almost in our job, which makes no sense at all, really. I also really like how Elisa described the different phases of her career as software upgrades. You know, Elisa 2.0, and now she's in Elisa 3.0. It's really cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. What, what do you think you'll be in? Oh, uh, maybe four? No, no, I think it's more like 12.0. Oh my goodness. You exaggerate. <laughs> I do, I do. But you know, the other really interesting discussion I thought we had was about working remotely, you know, and Lisa's point about making hybrid meetings as effective as possible by ensuring if one person's on Zoom, then everyone should be, even if they're in the same room. Yeah, Zoom, Teams, whatever. Yeah, exactly. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree with that because you want that sort of equality in participation going forward. You don't want someone to feel on the outer. Well, don't forget, you can read Elisa's book for yourself. It's called Don't Quit Your Day Job and it's in stores and online. It's a good read. It certainly is. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next conversation with an incredible female pioneer in two weeks time. Have a great week and stay safe. Ciao for now. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 